0: Welcome to the Jewelry Connoisseur Podcast, and now your host, Sonia Estrasoltani.
1: Welcome to the Jewelry Connoisseur Podcast, a podcast for people in the jewelry industry that want to learn more and jewelry lovers who want to expand their knowledge. In this podcast, we talk about everything that has to do with antique and vintage jewelry. I'm your host, Sonia Estelle-Soltani, the Editor-in-Chief of Rappapool. I edit a monthly magazine for the trade that covers everything from mining to retail. I'm also editing an online publication, Jewelry Connoisseur, like this podcast, and an Instagram account, Rappapool Jewelry Pro. We cover gemstones, estate jewelry, and contemporary design. I love to learn about jewelry. I love to have exciting guests. And I hope by the end of this episode, you have discovered something new and interesting about the fascinating world of jewelry. Today, my guest is award-winning writer, Melanie Grant. Melanie is the luxury editor at The Economist 1843 magazine. She's also a lecturer. She's the author of Coveted, a book that came out two years ago, a must-read for anyone embarking on the collector's journey is also a curator. She organized a first-selling exhibition at Sotheby's last year, Brilliant and Black. In this episode of The Jewelry Connoisseur, she's going to share tips on how to start collecting art jewelry, what to define when you start your journey, and she will also share a very interesting story of how she became a designer herself of a piece of art jewelry.
0: Hi, Melanie. So nice to have you with us today. How are you?
2: Hi Sonia, fine. I have a bit of a cold so I'm a bit chesty but um, I'm very excited by this conversation and I've had to really think about you know what I'm doing because you don't really think about collecting you just sort of end up doing it so it made me think about how it works.
0: Absolutely and I know you started as a collector with antique silver jewelry. Can you tell us how you started?
2: Yeah so I started as a teenager. I was a goth as a teenager. So I was quite punky and I used to wear a lot of sort of black leather and black chiffon and silver jewelry, massive crosses and like really big silver jewelry. So I used to go to flea markets in London like Camden and Notting Hill and I I bought things, you know, I'd haggle for hours with these poor people so I could sort of bedeck myself in silver. And then my grandma really had a nice collection of marcasite, which not a lot of people know about these days. And it was very popular in ancient Greece, Victorian times, Art Deco, uh, sorry, Art Nouveau eras. And it's kind of polished pyrite, which is fool's gold. And you could put it, you know, you could buy it in silver. And it was actually kind of a bit diamondy, but obviously not diamond. So I got into that and I had a lot of that. And then I went into vintage jewellery, vintage costume so I was really, I bought Trafari, Gousson, Robert, Weiss, Gripoir. They're very affordable, quite big spangly pieces, but, you know, not Dior and Chanel's. I couldn't afford that at the time. And then I sort of got into the real stuff, sort of in my 30s and 40s.
0: The real stuff. Well, we'll talk about it. Before that, what kind of learning experience was it for you to be a collector? What are the best ways to get on about starting a collection?
2: I was inspired to collect because women around me who are really stylish and powerful always had good jewellery. I noticed that about powerful women and I was intrigued by the connection and the relationship between their style and social kind of personal power and their jewellery. So I would sort of, you know, my grandma was very stylish and there was a couple of other women who I used to sort of notice like mothers of friends. I was intrigued by the jewellery. And so I think I started quite young being quite intoxicated by other people's jewellery. And then I started saving up and I had various jobs as a teenager. And I loved waiting to buy something they could then learn about in the process of waiting for it. So I think I started the journey quite young, but I didn't really buy anything I truly loved, probably until I was about 16. So I didn't really have that much money. But by then, I was very curious about what jewellery meant.
0: And you actually wrote a whole book two years ago, Coveted, which has become the reference for everyone that likes art jewelry and wants to know about the names, the big contemporary designers, the different themes. And I think maybe there's something we could just define now for our audience. What do you call art jewelry? Because I think that's today what we've tried to look at, not just the antiques, but more the art jewelry that people want to collect for the future, creating this long term, valuable, not in terms of money, but valuable in terms of meaning
2: collection. Yes, Coveted probably, you know, asked me about the process, my journey of collecting. And I think the last leg of my journey uh, was becoming a curator and a writer and a commentator after a lifetime of collecting. So Coveted sort of came out of 20 years of Really obsession. And I asked the question, can jewelry be art? And I discovered that it can at the very top level, when it's rare and unique and handmade and it makes you feel something, it maybe changes design, it changes our perception of reality, and it tends to be big and it tends to be sculptural and it tends to change you when it comes into your life. And I realized for me, that definition of art jewelry is that. Not to be confused with artist jewellery, which is when a fine artist then extends their practice into jewellery. For me, there's no separation. It doesn't matter what discipline you're working in. You can be a sculptor who makes jewellery or you can be a glassmaker who makes a necklace. It's just, is the piece itself a piece of art. So I would say art jewellery is something that stands apart from fine jewellery in that is more than product. It is an entity within its own right.
0: And what would you advise someone who just wants to start? Someone that's got offered, coveted, they loved it, and now they want to start the journey themselves. Where would you tell them what's the first steps to take and the advice and the pitfalls to avoid?
2: So I'd say if you're going to start collecting, become a patron. And By that, patrons are like a support system to designers it's not just here's some money give me a piece it's about a collaboration between somebody who wants to wear a piece of a designer and somebody who wants that piece on that person's body so take it quite seriously you know go to galleries get to know dealers read take the time don't buy on a whim really think about carefully what you're creating and have something which resonates with your life that you can wear that's comfortable. You know, there are practical elements, like if you're collecting antique jewellery, then it probably needs to be signed, have an original box and paperwork. If it's contemporary jewellery, then ideally you want some kind of connection or relationship with the designer. But I would say start small and build and buy what you can afford. Don't overstretch yourself to buy something which you think is going to make money down the line. You've got to wear it. It's a lifelong endeavour. It's not something that you just buy and put in a box and that's it. It's something which evolves with your life. So, you know, just go into it with that kind of mindset, I would say.
0: And I know your passion is contemporary designers and the designers of the future to identify who's the next Jean or Wallace Chan. You actually wrote also a chapter for a book on Wallace Chan last year. Who would you say today are the interesting names to follow, even if you don't buy them yet, but at least you know they are there and what they're doing?
2: Even the expensive designers often have much cheaper things they don't really talk about, which you can buy. Like we mentioned Ja, he's obviously a big name. He sells probably for 10 times the original price at auction. But, you know, you can buy some titanium earrings from him, which are not too expensive. Other big names, you know, we mentioned Wallace Chan, who's probably one of the biggest names from the East, from China, and he does sort of um, titanium butterfly brooches. So even the big names, is a way in if you do your research. Baron another one. I mean, he's probably a bit more expensive. You know, he has a lot of platinum and diamonds. These are all designers who at auction do very well. So if you're going for an investment angle, they're quite a good place if you've got the money. More affordable people. Still quite expensive, but more affordable probably are people like Hemelé, Taffin. I very much like David Michaels, the, the Australian twins. Because they do five pieces a year, and I think they're very collectible. Obviously, there are classics like Bell Peron. I'm also quite a fan of Vanguard, um, who are from Rome, and Daniel Brush, who again, you know, is a multidisciplinary artist. Uh, and more affordable still. Um, A good place to start, I would say, uh, in terms of budget. People like Cappuccine Huguet. She's a French designer who was based in London and she ran a competition last year. And I think she's going to have some very interesting things coming up. Jacqueline Rabin's very good and has a lot of very nice pieces at the Carpenters Workshop. Um, I think 10,000 things in New York, again, quite affordable. And they'll they'll hand cut things for people so you don't have to go big. Joy BC in London, Nicholas Liu in Hong Kong, and Lola Fenhurst in Paris, three others that I'd mentioned. So, all of those people, you could probably approach them with a half decent budget and get something completely original.
0: What advice would you give to
2: someone who works with a
0: high end designer who has an artistic personality?
2: You've got to be patient. You've got to understand that it's not about you. So sometimes collectors who have a lot of money go in saying, I want this and I want a big diamond here. And like that. No, anyone good is going to just say that, you know, you have to trust them to do what they do. And what they do is see who you are and give you something which they think you should have, which sometimes you have to grow into many years later. I've bought things which I didn't actually like at the time. And I've been then wearing them for 20 years. You know, it's they see something in you don't necessarily understand at the time. I would say it's definitely worth having a budget, a top budget in mind, because often as creative people, they'll say, but we could do this, this and this. And it's like twice the price. So you have to say, I cannot go over this budget. Whatever happens, if there is a biblical FUD, we still can't go over this budget. So just understand that. And You have to give them a long time because a piece can take years and you have to be prepared to be challenged because they might not agree with you. But the main thing is you have to understand your role as a collector. I mean, your role really is to support and collaborate, but not to direct.
0: And I think we talked earlier about going to galleries and auctions to have an idea of the value, because even if it's an artistic approach and it's a creative collaboration, even if you're going to wear it, you still see it as an investment. So would you recommend people start to see what the names are selling at the auctions just to have a frame of reference or to be a bit braver and just go to galleries that show young designers and young artists and just follow their feelings more?
2: I think it depends how you're going to collect, you know, what are your parameters? Are you going to collect a certain era? Are you going to just collect rubies? Are you going to collect contemporary titanium jewellery? I mean, you have to decide what kind of jewellery you're going to collect. And then when you've done that, intrinsic value and jewellery are obviously very closely linked. I would advise people to go with their gut and not trying to buy something which they think will get more expensive because that is a bit of a fool's errand. Um, I find that men in general are more interested in investment potential than women because women are buy to wear and most men are buying to have investment. So I think if you're going to actually wear the piece, it means something different to you. If you're a good collector and you have a vision, because it's yours, it will accrue value. If we look at someone like Liz Taylor, it was a random selection of things. She had some Bulgari, she had some Cartier, she had a lot of different things, but because it was hers, we wanted it had value so I would be much more concerned with creating something that you loved and that itself will have the hold the highest value and you'll be part of design history so I think great collectors don't collect to make money they collect because they can't not collect
0: I think that's your case as well. I think over the years, you've collected a lot of pieces that you cherish. And without going into the collection in specific names or specific pieces, what did you think was like a completely unexpected find in your journey that you still cherish today? You said something very interesting about a designer creating a piece at the time you didn't like it and you've been wearing it for 20 years. So they saw something.
2: Yes, I was photographed for a book a couple of years ago about women in the arts. And I really wanted to wear an original piece of jewellery. So I asked Uta Decker, who's somebody I really like, who does very contemporary fair trade sort of silver and gold, if she'd make me a bracelet for the shoot. And I wanted it, but I couldn't afford it at the time. I did buy a ring from her which is sort of curved silver. And it's a fascinating thing. It's not really my style. You know, it's very big, but I often like things with a lot of stones, white over the top, and it was very simple. And every time I wear it, it does something. People have to talk about it. And so I think someone should surprise yourself with things that you want. And it's an image which I'll give you of myself. And people often ask me about the jewellery I'm wearing in that. So it's been great because I started buying her work. You know, I think I bought the first thing, a masterpiece, seven years ago or something and now we're at a stage where she's having solo shows and she's become somebody quite well known and I think that's I've loved being on that journey with her just sort of silent in the background you know so I think that is a great part of collecting that you can become something more with that person as they grow as a designer.
0: I remember I discovered Ute's work thanks to you. I think I saw a picture of you and you had the piece of jewelry. It might have been for the Fiden book, actually. I think that you were wearing it on one of the shoes. And it's just superb and it fits you. It's just everything is so connected to you, to your personality. It's just uh, a piece of you. It became like an extension of you.
2: Yeah, and I love that. You think is the more you know, the more you want something that's probably independent. That's not to say if I could afford some vintage carte, I wouldn't buy it. Of course I would. But the same budget probably would go a bit further, you know, with an independent designer. So you do end up wanting to discover new people and get in at the stage where you can afford to buy something quite incredible. And I think... That's very exciting as a collector, discovering somebody you know is going to be quite interesting.
0: The investigative work is not just for the present to find this new upcoming designer, but I know you also love to know who are the makers. So when you think of Bulgari or Cartier, you also want to know all the big names, who who were the first makers of a specific style. Can you tell us a bit more? Because I think that's very interesting for people who are interested in jewelry and history and looking for information and more from a piece than just
2: the piece itself. Of course, there's a big debate raging in jewellery. Should we know who was actually made or designed the original icon? You know, many of the brands aren't very keen for us to know that. They present it as a complete entity from the brand. I think if you're in the industry, you're quite interested to know who, if Aldo Cipullo made the love bracelet, it's quite interesting to know. You can see what they've put into it and then how the brand has evolved. So I'm quite interested in that whole journey. And usually there's a handful of artisans somewhere in the 1920s doing something which you don't really know is the actual base design of something which is a, an absolute global icon and i'm also interested in like say a designer called paul ding farnum who was a very early designer for tiffany who made a beautiful selection of orchids and flowers and also people like paul flato who made fantastic pieces, which are kind of slightly obscured by time. You know, time moves on and we stop talking about them. When you go into sort of vintage and antique, there is a whole host of people. I mean, we've seen a big resurgence of Art Smith in the last couple of years. For a long time, unless you were in the West Village in New York, you didn't have a clue who he was. And now his pieces are really people trying to get hold of them at auction. So I think that's exciting. And I think it's worth investigating as a collector some of the more obscure figures behind the scenes. The Jewelry Connoisseur
0: Podcast will be back after this break.
2: The Jewelry Connoisseur Podcast is brought to you by Rappaport Jewelry Auctions. Rappaport Jewelry Auctions offers centralized monthly auction markets that provide sellers with liquidity for their jewelry at fair market value prices and give buyers an opportunity to purchase estate jewelry at competitive market prices. Rappaport's auctions consist of unique, estate, vintage, and signed jewelry, expertly curated and incredibly priced. With auctions held each month, there are always excellent buying and selling opportunities. Visit us at jewelryauctions.rappaport.com and register to participate in our upcoming auctions.
0: Do you feel like sometimes collectors are not brave enough? like they don't go to names they really have never heard of because they feel the safety net of buying the Van Cleef, the Cartier, the Bulgari could be a beautiful piece. They could see this amazing, amazing creation,
2: but they just don't want to put their money yet into their creator. I think it's about being acknowledged as being a good collector. So, you know, I sometimes go to events and I see people wearing very, very well-known pieces from, you know, the archives of big houses and they want you to know what those pieces are they want you to know that they have access and they have in their collection those pieces and those collectors are a type you know where they want you to know they have the jar butterfly that no one else has had there are other people who just purely creatively just buy things which are very obscure and I'm fascinated by that I want someone to come up to me and say what is that who is it by I need to know all about it That for me is more exciting. But having said that, I like it all. I'm not a huge fan of hugely commercial jewellery sometimes because I feel that what can you say about it? But I think there's a place for all of it, really. You know, sometimes you want to wear something well known. Sometimes you want to wear a hat pin from the 1820s no one's ever going to know about. And hopefully your collection is diverse enough to support all of those days that you have.
0: Talking about being bold, you created your first piece of jewelry yourself last year for an exhibition. I just wanted to know, did you have a collector in mind? Did you think of who would wear your cuff? Obviously yourself, it's your personality in it. But who did you think would be the
2: next owner of the piece? You know, that was a terrifying experience because it was in my mind for a long time. And then Elisabetta Cipriani said to me, should we make something together? And I said, well, yes, but, you know, we made it. I designed it, her workshop, you know, it was a long process of going back and forth, her workshop in Italy. And I didn't have anyone in mind. It just sort of came out of me. A bit like when I write, that comes out of me. I don't really think I'm gonna write and this person might like it. It just comes out of me. I have an idea, I do some research, it then comes out. So the same sort of process, And then when it came out, I was too scared to show it to anyone. So I had lunch with Jill Newman from Town and Country. She came to London and she was like, I want to see it. And I'm like, not sure it's ready, Jill, actually. She was just like, get out of the box. And you realize how terrifying and personal and how difficult it is to show anyone. It felt like it was part of me. And I thought if she does a face that says like she feels sorry for me, it's not very good. I'm going to like literally just cry at the table. And luckily she liked it. But it was one of the scariest things I've done in a long time. And also, I thought people might say, like, why are you designing something you don't know anything about? It's different writing about it. But it was a really nice process to actually do it because I write about it all the time. And sometimes you have to remind yourself how absolutely terrifying it is to actually make something and put it into the world and hope that somebody else likes it enough to actually buy it. So we did a series of eight. I'm hoping for great things, but we'll see. But I like wearing my jewel. I wear it all the time. But it's still quite scary to even wear it because it's like having your heart, you know, out there. How would you describe it for people who are listening to this podcast and haven't seen it yet? Just to have a feel for your creation. Well, it's a kind of medieval meets modern, which is very me. I love history, but I also love cutting-edge contemporary jewellery. So it's a cuff, it's got studs on it, it's two-toned, so it's kind of a, a dark oxidized silver and, and a gold plate. It has a big dome that you can peer into The whole point of that is to look into yourself and it was a statement it's called self it was about in covid we had to look into our own lives and figure out if we wanted the lives we'd created for ourselves and many of us didn't <laughs> so it was a lot about self reflection and just taking risks it was a risk for me and i'm a huge fan of risk taking but you know it's one thing talking about it another thing doing it so yeah it's it's quite big And it's definitely very, very shiny, which is why I like jewellery, I think. I love metal, which is possibly another reason I ended up in jewellery. It's a beautiful statement piece for people who
0: haven't seen it yet. Really a strong statement, like a real piece of art. So I think the collectors, we really enjoy wearing it. To wrap up this really interesting conversation, Melania, I would like to know what's in your ideal jewellery box. The dream collector, there's no
2: money, there's no budget. The sky is the limit here. Obviously, if I had an unlimited budget, I would probably ask for all of the pieces to be created from scratch. I would definitely get a Van Cleef's Pylons ring. I think I've seen one in Blue Sapphire, but I hear there's a, a rumour that there was one created in Ruby. I've never seen and they're like big conical structures. I'd definitely get one of those. I've always wanted some Verlier. They're a Milanese designer and their titanium is fantastic. But I've never managed to actually buy anything. Obviously, I'd have to buy some Himalaya. The Eye of Horace earrings from their Egyptian collection are fantastic. I'd have to buy an Egyptian piece from them. Um, I'd have to somehow wrestle the jar sheep's head brooch off the last person who bought it at auction. Have to track them down and offer them something they couldn't refuse. Anything by Grima, anything at all. I might try if I could get Castro NYC to sell me a very large dolly uh, with articulated gem set wings. I'd love that. Uh, I could go on and on. Some Belle Perron, some Fabio Cellini titanium earrings and definitely a massive aluminium and oxidised silver necklace by John Moore. The John Moore that was on the cover
0: of The Economist luxury edition, I think, a few years ago, that was absolutely spectacular, the photo shoot you directed. I think that's really one of the most amazing pictures I've seen of jewelry
2: in a long time. John came to that shoot and his pieces are like living art. You know, they move around. I mean, some of the pieces he does are huge. He's going to be absolutely in museums as time goes on.
0: I'm loving your dream jewelry box. Uh, Might call in and ask to borrow a few pieces from time to time
2: in that dreamland of ours. Take whatever you want. You know, it is the dream, and I would definitely be buying a piece a day. I think for at least a year.
0: That sounds like a wonderful plan. And I think people were just starting on their journey as collectors hope they've learned something. You gave them a lot of food for thought, a lot of very interesting names as well to discover and to explore. So I encourage everyone to go to see who the artists Melanie mentioned on this podcast are, if you don't know them yet, and just to open your heart and soul to new things in jewellery. Absolutely. It's a fantastic journey, so don't be shy. And I said it a few times before, but I'll say it again. For anyone who loves jewellery, you have to have coveted on your bookshelves, but to read it as well, not just on the bookshelf. It's beautiful, it's purple and looks great, but open it and read it. You learn so much with Melanie. Thank you so much, Melanie, for this lovely conversation today.
2: Thanks, Sonia, and all the team. And uh, see you soon. See you on Instagram. <laughs>
0: yes follow melanie also on instagram obviously melanie shares beautiful stories every day personal stories linked to um, jewelry with a history background as well and nature and fauna flora you name it so i can't encourage you enough to follow melanie once you read coveted you want to have a little dose of melanie every single day i promise you if you're a real jewelry lover thank you Thanks for listening to this new episode of the Jewelry Connoisseur podcast. If you want to follow us, please do so on Rappapol Jewelry Pro on Instagram. Please like the podcast, leave us comments, email me. We want to know what you think, what you'd like to learn with us. And if you want to connect with any of our guests, please do so. And we also encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter, JewelryConnoisseur.net, in which you'll learn about gemstones, estate jewelry, and contemporary design.